Welcome to Altamar. I'm Muni Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter, here to navigate the high seas of global politics as we do twice a month. Today, we're going to fly over the waves at 30,000 feet. We're going to keep it high and strategic. We're going to step back and take a good look at our world and discuss a bold proposal led by today's guest, Martin Malcolm Brown. In a world of daily headlines and political fires of every sort, big ideas seem to fall into some type of crevice of oblivion among the torrent of news. And this time at Altamar, we're going to want to zoom in and discuss the idea and the likelihood of a new Marshall Plan for the world. Peter, when you first suggested this topic, I was really transported back to college, which is um, only a couple of years ago, of course, where I learned about this great recovery program that the U.S. packaged in 1948 to restore Europe's economies after the war and how Europe has credited their U.S. ally for modernizing, rebuilding and economic recovery after the brutal destruction of World War II. Since then, this policy, while not perfect, it has some critics, has become the global gold standard and catchphrase for any large rescue program. So although there's some disputes about the impact of the original, it is perhaps largely considered by history its most successful foreign policy initiative. Look, Muni, but, you know, frankly, I, I, I just, it's, it's hard to imagine that that'd be possible t- now, not only, you know, for Europe at this time, but for Ukraine, for parts of Africa, for Central America. I mean, of course, this is terribly needed, you know, or even for the global issues such as climate change or food insecurity and health. But the U.S. looks so ill-positioned to still be the savior, and Germany is sorting out internal issues with a new chancellor whose power pales against Merkel's. And what about France? Well, let's not even go there. Macron erased his legacy in a series of concessions, first to the left, then to the right, in order to remain in power. And I, I just don't see an actor on the world stage who's going to provide this parachute or this who's going to galvanize people behind this idea and even trying to get people collectively through coalitions like the G7 to move this forward. And our, our guest has suggested that without action, we're going to end up proving Putin right in his claim that liberal democracies are just not able to successfully address poverty. But maybe he's going to be proven right. Today, I really want to take a look at public support of the, this Marshall Plan at the time and then how that compares to a possible Marshall Plan today. I mean, a massive undertaking like the Marshall Plan requires really strong public support. And today, I feel like that's really lacking. And Western voters are turning inwards. And while there is support for the Ukrainian people, it is finite and limited, in my view. And that is well reflected in the extent of financial support that global leadership is actually able to undertake. And this lack of public support to me is a primary reason why any type of grand vision and strategy won't really see the light of day. And when in 1947, a nationwide poll showed that 51% of Americans had not heard of the Marshall Plan, the Truman administration launched a massive public relations campaign to educate the American people, and that resulted in huge public support for the plan of restoring Europe. And today, with the fragmentation of media, lack of visionary leadership, and an apathetic youth, what pathway towards a grand vision like the Marshall Plan that, that was done in 1948 can we, can we really expect? I mean, social media, while 
not single-handedly responsible, has moved our interest inwards. And the question is no longer, you know, the famous kind of JFK quote, what you can do for your country, but only what your country can do for you. I mean, it's all about who's liking my picture, who's commenting on my reel, who's engaging with me, 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 me. And that, I feel, makes a grand vision like the Marshall Plan today seem nearly impossible. And such a plan requires us to look outwards, to imagine the livelihoods of others, and to, you know, how can we do something that's bigger than ourselves? And unfortunately, I'm less optimistic about a shift in that now than I was before the COVID pandemic. In 2020, we had a golden opportunity to come together in the fight against this common enemy. And yet we allowed the virus to divide us even further, deeply carving out existing fault lines and ideological differences. So unfortunately, my take today does not end on a positive note. I believe we missed a golden opportunity and what will it take for another window to open? So as always, I'd love to hear what you think. Join the conversation by tweeting at Altimore Podcast. This is all very concerning, Peter, as we look around, the G7 fails to take sufficient action to resolve the world's enormous problems and boost their GDP like the Marshall Plan did. But there are some takeaways. Of course, you guys are very pessimistic today, but there are some takeaways and deliverables from these summits on security policies, gender equality, disarmament, like really hard things and even climate change and specifically energy policy. They do fall short. Of course, they always do, but they also create some balance. And as a de facto rebuff of Russia, who was suspended after the annexation of Crimea, I would just rather these groups continue and, and not just kind of fade away. Well, this is a good time we need to introduce our guests. You know, I hear Taya's doubts. The world needs bigger ideas now more than ever. But let's hear from a proponent of a big idea, a new initiative of large scope. Mark Malik Brown is president of the Open Societies Foundations, the world's largest private donor of independent groups working for justice, democratic governance, and human rights. He's worked to advance human rights, justice, and development for more than four decades in a variety of roles with the United Nations, with the World Bank, and as a British government minister as well as with a range of civil society groups and businesses. He served as Kofi Annan's chief of staff and then as UN Deputy Secretary General before joining the British government of Prime Minister Gordon Brown as Minister Responsible for Africa and Asia from 2007 to 2009. Malik Brown received a knighthood for his contributions to international affairs and is currently on leave from Britain's House of Lords. And importantly, Munite, I just want to say he's my former boss when I was just starting my career as a political advisor at Sawyer Miller Group. Mark Malik Brown, welcome to Altamar. It's such a pleasure to have you on again. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. So you wrote a really provocative and interesting New York Times opinion piece recently in which you talked about a Marshall Plan 2.0. And I'm just going to let you introduce the subject. What did you mean by this? Well, it's kind of perhaps a good place to start is a little bit of history about the original Marshall Plan. You know, America had just come out of a war which perhaps wasn't as exhausting the Second World War for the US as it was for its European participants. But nevertheless, you, America was preoccupied with bringing its boys home by providing them jobs, houses, opportunities for higher education, the sort of dividend for the years of fighting they'd spent in the European and Asian theatres. And then suddenly they found that 
they might have won the war, but there was a danger they were losing the peace in Europe with the spread of communism through southern Europe and westwards from through central Europe. And so, you know, incredibly enlightened leaders, General Marshall and others, persuaded President Truman that there had to be a major investment in Europe to sort of turn this situation around. And it was a really extraordinary 2 to 3% of American GDP. Uh, and at the beginning, you know, it left Congress, it left American public opinion cold. And the Gallup polls, which had just started at that time, similarly showed very low levels of public support for this. And then, you know, Marshall and his team seized it and went out and made the case around the country, made the case on Capitol Hill, and then went on and turned the destiny of Europe around you know, kept most of Europe in the sort of free market, um, democratic uh, side of things and, you know, set it up for later, post-1989, you know, the triumph of those values uh, much more widely uh, across the continent. And, you know, it's something as apparently implausible but vital that I think we need this time, which is an America... Uh, again, I think we look to American leadership, but with its G7 and other partners to say, look, you know, we've got to see beyond Ukraine. We've got to see that, you know, Ukraine is just the final trigger to a much wider economic and therefore political crisis across the global south. Uh, and indeed across many developed countries too, where, you know, here in the UK, we've got projection of 18% inflation, uh, household energy bills going up to a impossible portion of people's uh, family incomes. And so, you know, we face that and yet we're sort of still focused on Ukraine. We've not been able to lift our heads beyond that and see that, you know, Ukraine is a battle in a wider war, a vital battle, but that we've got to also win that wider war for global prosperity and therefore for global democracy and uh, the rules that govern both. I've read and heard you talk about this, quote, perfect storm of hardship, which you've just mentioned a little bit. And it, it, there's no doubt that it feels like a storm with world hunger growing, gas prices, disease and pandemics, violence increasing. Dive a little deeper into the current state of this perfect storm of hardship and why Western leadership is critical. Well, you, you know, it, Ukraine is the final trigger of a sequence of events which over the last decade, you know, has really undermined global integration. Um, you know, it, it arguably started with the financial crisis, 2008-9. It then went through the trade wars. It went through Trump's election in the US. It went through Brexit in the UK. Uh, it culminated, obviously, in, in COVID. But, you know, all of these things have disrupted supply chains, driven the world towards a political economy of repartition, of building up, you know, friendshoring, as President Biden and Secretary Yellen have called it, of, of you know, just for security's sake, just buy things from your near neighbors and, and allies. And in so doing is, you know, undermining this sort of vital collaborative global economic model that we've had, uh, which has really driven growth and improved living standards for so many people in, you know, this century and the last decade of the last century. And, and so, you know, why U.S. leadership on this? Because, 
you know, still the U.S. is a dominant player, but it's a different kind of U.S. leadership. This isn't 1945. It's U.S. leadership in collaboration, not just with its traditional G7 partners, but with uh, leaders from the South as well. And, you know, the perfect storm bit, the other part of your question, you know, the UN is saying there are 94 countries, you know, that's half the world in terms of country count, which face this triple crisis of fuel inflation, of food prices, and of debt. So, you know, this this is a massive, massive, massive avalanche coming towards us, you know, which I think will be reflected in increased political instability and food rights in places and debt crises. And so, you know, it's a challenge, not just to American, but to multinational and international leadership more broadly. Mark, the stated goal of the Marshall Plan, of course, was to halt the spread of communism on the European continent. So it had a pretty specific goal and, and work plan. But today, with the threats that you describe, how is it possible to create you know, one plan if there's not one country, uh, one uh, one crisis. Well, you know, it was it was a region, Europe, so it was already much more than one country, many and and uh, but and it was you know that 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 organizing against communism. You know, it's possible that the way something like this will get going this time is organizing against you know, a Russia and Chinese block in the world. And, you know, very much across developing countries, you know, that's the talk at the moment of, you know, China at the moment probably investing 10 times the amount in Africa, according to some estimates of what the US is investing of becoming a critical infrastructure partner in the continent, as well as trade partner. Uh, and, you know, so what may well drive it is indeed that, that that political competition point, resisting this this spreading Chinese influence, and it's the Chinese bit which is frankly much bigger than the Russian bit. But you know, actually, I I hope in a sense we can get beyond that and look at a more collaborative model where it's not organised in competition and conflict with China, but around a shared view that you know. China and the US are the two biggest stakeholders in an open global economy, and that it's in both their interests to try and protect it. But we'll, we'll, we'll see in the current mood of Washington, which you both know well, you know, I think it's more likely to be organized as an anti-China coalition than a holding out the hand in friendship to China partnership. So the Marshall Plan was expensive, and after World War II took about 5% of U.S. GDP, um, the, the rebuilding process. It, that seems a little bit unlikely that the U.S. would invest uh, that large amount of money when there's so many societal political restraints that prevent the U.S. from doing so. Do you think there will ever be political will to, to embark in such a, a great endeavor? Well, I think the political will comes from two things. It comes from leadership like General Marshall, you know, who just go out and make the case that we neglect this thing at our peril. We've, we've got to grip it. But I think it also comes from, at the moment, if you look at all sources, private investment, public grants, lo loans, the rest, you know, the, the sort of global development effort going much wider than the U.S., is probably in the order of five, six hundred billion dollars a year. You know, my calculations working with a lot of colleagues and experts and attending various discussions on this is if we could sort of set a benchmark of an additional 2% of global GDP a year, which would be 
approximately $2 trillion a year uh, to invest in this, we would make an incredible difference. So, you know, half a billion at the moment, additional $2 trillion, you know, you're multiplying four times what you, you've got there at the current moment. But I'm thinking of 2% of not just American GDP or donor country GDP, but global GDP, where everybody puts up a share according to their means, so that it becomes a great exercise in partnership and collaboration uh, around a shared sense of destiny that if we just don't reboot this global economy in a much greener direction with a much more sustainable approach to energy and infrastructure and, and food, you know, we are really burning out the welcome mat for generations to come. And, you know, I think the reason there is traction on this you know, is that sense of growing impending climate crisis. Uh, I did quite a bit of the work around some of these calculations at a meeting in Barbados under the prime minister there. Well, you know, there's a country where the frequency of hurricanes, you know, has just become from a rare event to an endemic event uh, with dramatic impact on its economy. And, you know, across the whole sort of middle band of the world between the two tropics of Cancer and Capricorn. We're seeing the sort of impact of climate change on livelihoods, not being any more an event for your children or your grandchildren, but an event very much today for people. And that is quickly going to impact lives outside that band, our own lives to the north and other lives to the south. So, you know, we're in crisis territory and either we pull ourselves together and respond or we don't. And I think on the financing, it's probably good that to just say, add just one word, that it wouldn't just be public finance. It's got to be a lot of private finance in partnership with uh, as well. So I want to talk about, you mentioned generations to come, and I have a little segment on our podcast that talks about youth and social justice issues. And so, you know, uh, more broadly, I mean, the West is in miserable shape, right? Britain is suffering um, post-Brexit, and Germany's busy with a new prime minister without Merkel, and France's Macron is weakened by attacks from the left and right, and the United States, of course, is divided and polarized. So how does the world, and particularly the West, unite behind such a grand idea? Uh, look, you know, I mean, I mean, I should say that, you know, my suspicion is they ultimately may not. This is you know, holding up this challenge to them, not with an overwhelming sense it's going to happen, despite the seriousness of, of, of the need, you know, recognizing exactly what you've said, that the politics couldn't be worse, you know, we're in that introverted, looking at back into our own backyards, you know, Biden's looking over his shoulder to see whether Trump's coming after him. Uh, you know, Britain is barely governed by a completely broken conservative party is, as you say, in a hard way. And now you've got a range of countries in the global south where you can anticipate a higher degree of destabilization as these crises bite home. So you're right, horrible context to launch this, but so was, you know, 1946-7. Um, and it's about leadership and it's about identifying problems that are coming and addressing them and understanding that the costs are not just a loss of life in the developing world, but potentially the loss and the loss of a whole political system. You know, this is actually the Western democratic model that's on trial because, you know, it's viewed as not delivering either in its local versions in developing countries, you know, or in its 
Western home because these governments in the West are simply not rising to their global responsibilities. So, you know, take me as a Cassandra more than necessarily a, a, a prophet of what's going to happen. You know, this is kind of warning. There's a big cost out there if people don't get on top of this and a recognition they may not. But Mark, isn't some of the culpability for the mess that we're in also lying? I mean, much of it lies with the West and richer countries and the and the responsibility lies with the West and richer countries. But there's also an issue of the global South really presenting a lot of corruption, human rights violations, poor governance. I mean, you know, as you know better than anybody, I'm a Latin Americanist. I mean, look around Latin America today. I mean, it's not exactly surprising that there is a reluctance to invest in Latin America and in other countries. How does one convince richer countries that now is the moment when there, there's, a, a, there's a lot of problems in the global south that need to be fixed by the global south? I, you're completely right, Peter, and I think you know I'm really glad you've asked it because otherwise, you know, it 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 can seem fantasy land to demand this massive investment in developing countries when there is that record of bad policy, high levels of corruption, the rest. And you know, my own view is this is you know that trust is broken. Uh, donors don't believe developing countries in many cases will make good use of the funds. Developing countries uh, resent and have a deep sense of grievance against a kind of short leash donor model of austerity and conditionality. And the private sector looks at both and says we can make a lot more money investing in a shopping mall in the West than building a road in Kenya. And so, you know, you've got to transform that triangle of suspicion, if you like, into a more virtuous one of, of trust and performance going forward. And I think the trust bit is to sort of put the relationship on a much more equal cooperative partnership basis. And hence this idea of everybody contributing according to their means, not just rich countries. But secondly, it needs you know, a relaunched multilateral system where the technocratic expertise of the World Bank or the IMF is reorganized around a much more investment-oriented model of growth rather than of public spending control as in the past. Um, and, and that they are given the sort of technical space and competence to be able to sort of exercise a technocratic view of what's working and what isn't, but around that very changed economic model. But then finally, it needs developing country governments to, you know, really sort of pledge into this and to recognize that, you know, you won't have the old fashioned conditionality imposed by the North on the South, but you will have a contract, you know, that these monies flow in return for you hitting certain targets of performance, one of which is the money doesn't go out to Swiss bank accounts or Caribbean bank accounts. And, you know, so there's got to be an honesty and a transparency and a dialogue and almost certainly a big role for civil society as the local sort of 
if you like, sort of civil society auditor of this to make sure monies are flowing. And, you know, there's a lot going on in that latter space around the world, a lot of inventiveness about, you know, how you do get the sort of civil society watchdog, even in countries which are not very kind to civil society. So, you know, India, for example, has a law now that you, which is a kind of freedom of information law, but which civil society is using at the rates of thousands of requests a day about Indian government decisions. A lot of work has been done this, on this in Indonesia, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I think the final point is to sort of make sure that democracy stays because, you know, you use Latin America as an example. Well, you, you know, in Colombia, Chile, and prospectively in Brazil, you're seeing, you know, more left-wing governments returning to power, and in the case of Colombia, coming to power for the first time. Um, and, you know, why? Because the governments that have preceded them have been a walking disasters in terms of, you know, delivering for their people. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think we've got to make sure that that kind of democratic accountability survives this as well. We've kind of got to rescue democracy's reputation because it's the ultimate sanction on governments that do steal and underperform. Let me uh, go back to Ukraine, because you, you've mentioned, particularly at the beginning, you mentioned Ukraine a number of times about it being just the tip of the iceberg. And and um, I think you wrote even that the G7 is missing the point. Tell us why you think Ukraine is such a paradigm shift for the world. Well, look, the first thing is, you know, there's this was a devastating breach of international law by Russia, a P5 member of the Security Council, you know, and it has shaken the international system to the roots. There's just no doubt about it. It was a crime of the first order. Um, so, you know, when developing countries say, look beyond Ukraine, there are other problems out there. I don't think any of them may mean to diminish the wrongness of the Russian act. Um, and its imp international implications. But the problem is if, you know, we remain a sort of, you know, one horse town where our only response is Ukraine and where, you know, even there's actually part of what stimulated my Marshall Plan comment was, you know, a G7 suggestion there was a Marshall Plan for Ukraine, you know, and, it, and it's this need to go much wider and see Ukraine as just the compounding crisis of a series of crises that, you know, uh, need addressing in a systemic way. And, you know, I, I, but having said that, it's not to in any way detract from the crime that the Putin regime has done to the people of Ukraine. Mark, when I'm, I'm listening to you with this seems like such a logical thing what you're proposing however when i look around and and we've podcasted on every corner of the world i i fail to find the leadership that would be necessary to put this gigantic plan together uh, re result you know that would requires so much consensus and and especially leadership and i don't just mean political leadership you mentioned private sector it, like looking at the at the people who are in charge right now, who do you think would lead a process or who do you think should lead and is, has the capability to do so in this very fragmented world? Look, I mean, it's absolutely the right question. And one, one looks out in dismay, uh, you know, at much of the current leadership, um, you know, but then you see the odd sort of 
slivers of light and possibility. You know, Chancellor Schultz in Germany has really turned Germany around in terms of, you know, its approach to Russia and its dependence on Russian uh, energy. He's pivoted the country. I mean, his critics say he should have pivoted more and faster, but it's been a dramatic reshaping, if you like, of Germany's foreign policy, security policy and energy policy. Uh, And, you know, you've got Indonesia leading the G20 at the moment, one of the more world's you know more ambitious developing countries uh, and you know you you have uh, individuals who are you know leading large corporations and we we for example saw the response of some of the largest pharma companies to covid the dramatic technical technology scientific innovations that produced mRNA vaccines and other treatments in record time. So, you know, there there is the leadership out there. Um, It's just, it's not coalesced around this. And instead you get a kind of limp-wristed sort of Davos conference type response of hand-wringing and we should do something about this and study groups and working groups. This needs to be galvanized and I think, you know, you know, ultimately, you know, fate tends to find the right people. I don't think General Marshall, until he came forward with the Marshall Plan, and, you know, those around him had to induce him to do it by suggesting they'd lend his name to it. You know, leadership isn't, you know, there aren't obvious people out there seizing the ring, but, you know, circumstance, situation can make individuals form way beyond what you anticipate of them. And I think, you know, we've got to be casting around for who are the people at the moment who can start, you know, galvanizing this. And, you know, I was sort of having lunch with somebody today on a public health uh, issue and reminding ourselves that the particular sort of development of the treatments for tropical diseases that have saved so many lives in recent years that, the government I was in, but my Prime Minister Gordon Brown in the UK, in partnership with Bill Gates, the head of a foundation, not unlike the foundation I now run. It was their partnership that really, you know, drove these advances in, in public health. And, and others then came on board. And, you know, in our world of OSF, um, Sati, you know, we, we saw similar partnerships at the end of the Cold War between our founder, George Soros, and the Pope and enlightened political leaders, some of them fairly implausible, Chancellor Kohl in Germany, Margaret Thatcher in the UK, Chirac, President Chirac in France, who came together with Mikhail Gorbachev on the, the other side to manage the extraordinary dismantling of, of this sort of two two-part world that we had then in the Cold War. So, you know, and, and, and few of those individuals I mentioned were natural statesmen. I mean, you know, President Chirac had had his share of scandals and, you know, popes tend to be elderly and a bit past their sell-by date. And yet these, you know, individuals came together in extraordinary coalitions of change because the need was there, the demand was there. And I think you know, rather than looking for some sort of charismatic celebrity politician who's preening to sort of lead the world, you know, circumstance and events will produce, I hope, unlikely leaders, but I recognize they may not. Mark Malik brown thank you for joining us on Altamara. 
Thank you. A little bit optimistic after listening to this grand plan. And then, of course, I think about when, who's going to execute. And I, and I try to remember the, the famous phrase, build it and they will come. So hopefully it'll be a, a leader maker if it ever gets implemented. But my reflection really is that he talked about China and Russia and the governments and in Latin America that are losing their their democracy. It still is a Marshall Plan against communism, or am I being too simplistic? You know, you're, you're definitely not being simplistic, but I, I have a, a, and just to answer you, it is definitely a Marshall Plan against China. Uh, but You know, my, my view is another one. I, I'm glad that you feel that Mark, who's always so convincing and so eloquent, has made you, turned you an, into an optimist. But, you know, he's presuming it's 1948 and somebody has is rising up with solutions. I'm presuming it's, you know, the end of 1909 and we're entering into World War One here and the world is going to go into a massive set of difficulties that include, I, I don't think necessarily we're going into a world war, but a massive set of economic and social, economic and military difficulties that are going to change the world when we come out of this in ways that we can't imagine how. And that, that's so I see very much, I think Mark, as much as I respect and love him, I think he has his dates wrong. You know, I agree with you, Peter. I think, I think I'm, I'm quite pessimistic on it too. And, you know, on the public opinion side, I mean, we're in a very different place than we were in, you know, 1946 or 47, 48, when there was massive public support for the Marshall Plan, for example. Um, and you're, you know, you're not just seeing that. I think we talked, you know, about turning inwards. And I definitely feel that that's happening, uh, especially with things like social media. And we're just living in a completely different world. So I'm a little more pessimistic. Um, so anyway, we'll end it here on this pessimistic note and you can listen to Altamar wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps us a lot. Also, sign up for our bi-weekly free newsletter. It's amazing for analysis of global trends. And we will see you next time. <laughs>